Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Mark Truby is Chief Communications Officer at the Ford Motor Company. Here he leads all global communications and public relations activities. This includes building the company's reputation globally and helping to lead communications that reach Ford's external and internal audiences, including customers, employees, dealers, suppliers, news media, communities, governments, and policymakers. Mark reports directly to Ford CEO Jim Farley. Mark is also the proud father of three boys and was named to the 2022 PR Week Power List. Prior to joining Ford, Mark was an award-winning reporter and editor at the Detroit News, which is a big part of his executive origin story. Mark's journalism background gave him a much more story-centric approach to comms, all of which is very evident in a lot of Ford's marketing. Mark dives deep into this, his career history, and tells us a great story about the months-long process of getting President Joe Biden to drive the Ford F-150 at a recent launch. With Without further ado, here is Ford CCO Mark Truby in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer. Mark, thank you for joining us. We're really excited to have you on the show here. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to talk to you guys. So uh, I thought we'd start by just um, maybe like kind of back at the beginning for you and your career a little bit, just sharing a little bit about the path you've taken. You, you started in journalism. Um, and I don't mean just like interning at a publication. You had a real journalism career there in Detroit. Uh, you wrote extensively about Ford, um, you know, leading to your proverbial 10,000 hours of expertise on the brand. And now here you are, you're Ford's chief communications officer. So um, probably a, a unique origin story there. You want to maybe just share a little bit about what that path has been like? Yeah, sure. I don't know how far you want to go back. Um, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, a long, it's a long way to the top. If you want to rock and roll, I guess is, you know, when I think back on, if I had to do it all over again, what, you know, how would you, how would you have ever navigated it? Because I started, I was, uh, I, I was in West Virginia. I was going to school at Marshall University, and I started working in the evenings at the newspaper there, the Huntington Herald Dispatch, and they had me like running after like uh, doing the police blotter and things like that, and. I eventually took a full-time job there and really got the journalism bug in a big way. Um, and I was trying to figure out like how to get to a big city newspaper. Uh, I eventually got to do some really interesting stories, um, including one sort of bigger, more sensational investigative piece about a couple that was from our little town in West Virginia that got charged with murder down in the Caribbean in St. Vincent and the Grenadines and talked my, uh, did they do it? Well, they, they ended up skipping to the end. They ended up uh, being acquitted. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I talked the editor at the time into sending me down there for a week and uh, and I came back and wrote this big three part series called Prisoners in Paradise. And it was like probably book length in, in total. And, um, you know, and it became it ended up being covered by everybody, you know, uh, Nightline and New York Times. Everybody eventually went down there. It was right after the O.J. Simpson trial. And people were looking for the next interesting murder trial to murder case to, to write about or, or to, to cover. Um, and I just it sort of ended up using that as a, a calling card to 
sort of finally, you know, USA Today took note of it. And I, I ended up going to USA Today um, as part of the Gannett newspaper group and worked there for a while. And then they asked me, would I, would I go to Detroit? So in a roundabout way, I ended up in Detroit and I thought that I was going to be covering like police and crime. And, you know, I was a big Elmore Leonard fan. That's the way I pictured my career going was, was to be a crime reporter. Uh, And after I was there for about a year and I did do some of that, you know, they said, you know, the big thing in town is, is the autos. And would you consider covering Ford? And so I ended up covering Ford for three years, really got to know and appreciate the company. They didn't always appreciate me, but I, I really appreciated the company and all the history and, <laughs> and the, 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 how big and, and important it was to the economy and the labor relations and technology and the environment. And there was just a lot to dig into covering Ford. So I did that for three years, got to know a lot of people at Ford. And then I was, um, I became the business editor at the Detroit news for a few years and right around 2007, they approached me and about joining. And I was, you know, thinking, should I stay in journalism, which I loved, but I could see that newspapers were really a burning platform. And it was, you know, at that time I had 20 people on my, my staff as the business editor. And, and, you know, I think it's like five or six now. And I, I kind of see that coming and I considered going to New York to work in journalism, but ultimately, obviously I decided to take a big leap and, and join Ford. And, uh, I, it was right when the whole thing was collapsing, right? The Great Recession, GM and Chrysler were on the verge of bankruptcy. So were we. We were going to congressional hearings and, and all of that. And obviously, Ford was able to avoid bankruptcy, um, unlike GM and Chrysler and Delphi and those companies, and kind of came out the other side and uh, were a big comeback story. Um, there's a book about it called American Icon that's I uh, was written by somebody who used to work for me at the newspaper. And, you know, so it was just an amazing whirlwind two years after I joined Ford. I was also supporting Bill Ford, who's our chairman, our executive chairman. And so I was doing the corporate communications plus, you know, supporting Bill. And that was just, you know, for a former journalist that always wanted to know what was going on inside the belly of the whale. Like that was like, you know, um, I always said myself, this may not work out, but maybe you'll get a book out of it. And then I got to Ford and I, I really loved it. And so they asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I'd love to work overseas. I went to Europe for five years to run the European communications team for Ford. Um, and then spent one year in Shanghai. and was going to stay there for a few years, running the Asia group, a comms group for Ford. And then there was a shakeup at Ford and um, Bill called and said, you know, I'd like you to come back and run all the communications for Ford. And that was five years ago. So it's been 15 years. My career has been roughly 15 years of journalism, 15 years at Ford, but it's been a fast 15 years because of everything that's happened, you know, going overseas and coming back. And, and so that's kind of how I got to where I am today. That's a, it's a great story. I'm curious, you know, all of your, your experience, even people who start in journalism are, are oftentimes not on the crime blotter you know, um, to then make that leap into where you're at now. Are there any, anything that you feel like that journalism background specifically prepared you for this position or is it really just making the most of opportunities as they come? No, I I think definitely, you know, I was so intensive about learning how to be a good reporter and editor and, you know, completely obsessed actually with, with that whole process and, and understanding how to find stories, tell stories, get information, um, present information. 
um, it was just my life, you know, 80 hours a week for, for those 15 years. And I found a lot of that was helpful and, and transferable, you know, when I moved over onto the PR and communication side, just, you know, just being a, a good writer uh, was, you know, something I could really draw upon in, in a lot of situations, as you might imagine. And, but just really, it's just the ability to, 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 to look out into a sea of, of information and say, okay, what is the story here and, and what's going to resonate and how, how do you build? And then, you know, that, that was helpful for me at the beginning. Um, and obviously knowing what journalists go through day to day and, and the kinds of stories that, that, that work for them, all of that helped me, you know, kind of get a, a good start. And of course there was a lot more to learn once, once you really got into it. But, but I, I found that my journalism training and it, it actually was a big advantage, mostly, mostly just the ability to think about stories and the ability to write. Uh, and uh, that, that is not as common as you might think in, in PR communications world. Um, I think people struggle with that because they didn't put their 10,000 hours in sometimes. Yep. Yeah. So, so let's, let's fast forward. Let's fast forward. So, so you guys had the F-150 Lightning launch, right? This was the talk of the industry. This was the talk of America when it happened. It was already what you would consider hard news. Um, but then, of course, you've got the sitting president of the United States to test drive it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and just in terms of, you know, how that came to be? And um, you know, was that a comms-led initiative or, or where did that come from? Well, so, you know, we were thinking about this launch, um, which was May of 2021. And I think, you know, we started thinking about it probably eight, nine months in advance, you know, and we knew that we wanted to make it a something very special. So for us, so a company like Ford that's, you know, 119 years old, um, and it has a lot of associations in people's minds. We were, you know, we really want people to understand uh, where we're headed as a company, that we're becoming far more, we're leaning obviously heavy into electric vehicles and software driven vehicles and moving into the future in a way that's, that's modern, but it's still Ford. It's not, uh, we're not rebranding ourselves. We're not changing the name of the company. We're not changing the business that we're in. And there, so we kind of knew there would be, we probably never have a better chance than the F-150 Lightning because we were taking the best-selling vehicle in America for the past 40 years, a franchise that on its own is a $50 billion revenue franchise is bigger than, you know, Nike. It's, it's bigger than, you know, companies of that size. Uh, it's probably what's most associated with Ford. And if we were to successfully show that we could make an electric, you know, very digitally connected version of it, you know, an ingenious with ingenious features, but that still delivered for truck owners and people that had to do a tough job and people that just loved driving trucks, that there would be no better way for us to sort of show where we were headed as a company. And, we, and, and the fact that it's going to, that it was going to be built at the Rouge, this is Henry Ford's River Rouge plant, the famous one where he you really kind of perfected the moving assembly line and vertical integration and this mass, our massive Rouge plant right there near our headquarters. So it was, it was kind of the the best of where we've been and the best of where we're headed. Um, So we started thinking about it and 
I, you know, to my mind and a couple other people's at Ford, I said, this is very much a national story. I mean, President Biden, and we knew that he wanted to accelerate the move to green energy in the country. We also knew that he is a big booster of and, and believer in labor unions. So here was an electric vehicle built by an American icon, by by the United Auto Workers in a, in a very historic plant. So, you know, my feeling was, you know, if ever there was a, a vehicle launch that a president wanted to attend, maybe this is it. So we ended up, you know, going back and forth with the administration over many weeks and months. And there was a few times along the way that we thought, well, it's just not going to work out. You know, maybe he, they were excited about it. You know, for sure he was going to tweet about it and those kinds of things. But getting him there and, and you know, we had so eventually we had to pick a date and we had spend a lot of money on these type of launches and uh, and bring a lot of media in and all those things that you would expect. And then sort of towards the end, it just things started to fall in place. They said, you know, the president's really interested in a visit. And we he ended up being able to come the day before the official launch. So we were like, well, that's a little tricky because he's going to want to see the truck and drive the truck. And we're, we're all keyed up to launch it the next day. And they said, well, that's not that sounds like a problem. But it sounds like it's your problem. So we were, uh, so we ended up working it out and not, we, you know, if you notice the truck that, that the president drove, it was, um, it's a camo truck. It was like, it still wasn't. So we tried to, to, to not fully reveal it the day the president came and visited the plant, gave a speech. And um, all along, we, we said, maybe, we, maybe he could drive it. And the Secret Service was like, no, no, you know. That's just not going to happen. We were like, okay. Then we get there, and but we said, let's just have one ready just in case. You never know. We get there, and of course, um, then we start hearing from the Secret Service. The president's telling us he does want to drive it, but we're still trying to talk him out of it. It's very much against all of our protocols. And so he says in the speech at our factory, um, he says, they're telling me not to drive it, but I want to drive that sucker. And, you know, so sure enough, right after... Um, Right after the event we had uh, with the president, we took him over to our test track. He drove it. Media was there. You know, he said he, he did a couple circles and, you know, he said that line, this, this sucker's quick. And, you know, it it, it was so that like was not scripted. Was, that was not scripted. None of that was scripted. There, so there was a lot of luck involved, but the luck came from, you know, months and months of us working towards something, you know, obviously a few things had to fall right for him to be there the day before our launch test drive the vehicle. And then of course the very next day, you know, when we did the launch, you know, we pretty much had all eyes on us. Um, so it was one of those things that, you know, you know, it was just a lot of kismet and, and some good fortune, but we really, that's exactly what we'd hoped to happen was that this would be a moment where, the middle America, really all of America would say, this is a transition point for electric vehicles going from, uh, you know, third and fourth vehicles for the very wealthy, normally on the coast, to entering into the mainstream. You know, that was really our goal is this is about, this was about electric vehicles going mainstream. And a lot of the articles, if you go back and read it, people say just that, that this would be the model T for the electric age. And and so that's how, that's how that went down. Um, you know, it was really a, a joint effort with ourselves and, you know, obviously the, our government affairs people and everybody at Ford was really involved in this um, all the way up to Bill Ford um, and, and Jim Farley, our CEO. But 
you know, it was a pretty special moment for our brand. And we hope, you know, people see that as sort of a pivot point for, you know, can Ford compete with the likes of Tesla and so forth and Apple, um, you know, the, and this is, you know, this was our proof that, that we're really in the game for the future. Um, and our stock pretty much quadrupled over the next several months, um, not just because <laughs> of that, but, but once people start to believe that there's a store, that there's a future, then, then, then they're more open because for the, for the most part, the market, the stock market and the investors haven't been excited about the auto industry, the traditional legacy auto industry in a long time. And, uh, and that for us, you know, we went from being worth about $20 billion as a company to over a hundred billion, you know, within a matter of a few months. I hope that Jim Farley sent you a Christmas card. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, you're, you're, you're sort of breezing over points in this story, I feel like, that are actually really, really pivotal, and in particular for our listeners in communications functions, you know, which is really about seeing the opportunity and the depth of this story, where you were talking about the size of this business compared to Nike, for example, the, the heritage of the plant, you know, like really telling a complete story there. And I would imagine um, without all that storytelling, President Biden's probably not actually that interested. Right. But when you put all those pieces on the table is where you realize, oh, wow, there is something special here. It's not just another truck launch. Um, so I think that that's, you know, it's it's amazing to see the power of, of what we do um, when everything has a little bit of kismet, you know, baked into it. But uh, it's a great story. So thank you for sharing it. Um, let's talk about another uh, another great story, you know, and, and obviously Ford has always been a, a civic citizen there in Detroit. Um and a couple of years ago, you did a documentary, um, Detroit, Comeback City, about Detroit's economic downfall and rebirth. It was picked up by the History Channel. Um, but you've done actually a number of different um, sort of pieces of brand journalism, you know, I guess I would, I would call it. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that style of work versus the role of communications in earning coverage, you know, owned media, you know, how it all works together? Um, you know, is there something where you would say there's a, a best practice when you think about that? Or is it really just, you know, waiting and you, when you see the story, you got to move? Um, you know, I, I do believe in and love and get a kick out of, you know, earning coverage in the way that you might, the traditional way that you might think of it. Like, you know, a big splashy story in the New York Times about the F-150 Lightning, like, like we had a couple of months ago, you know, I, I think that, that, it, that still means something just like television advertising still means something, but it does, but in my mind, it doesn't mean what it used to. Um, and I think that the way that people sort of form their opinions and, and get information has obviously changed quite a bit. It's evolved. Um, you know, we're talking today for a podcast and, and, you know, that's people spend more time listening to podcasts than they do reading newspapers. I'm sure by a factor of, I don't know what, so we just, you know, we've been trying to sort of have a growth mindset about the whole thing and say, let's just, let's try to think about how we can really tell our story in, in bigger ways, in ways that would, um, you, you still have to earn people's attention. So when we did the documentary, we were, you know, Bill Ford had made a decision that he was going to buy 
the train station in Detroit that had been abandoned since 1988. It's this huge, hulking, beautiful relic that, you know, for years and years, photographers used to come to the city and crawl around in, and they called it like, um, you know, ruin porn or whatever. They would take pictures of this abandoned, beautiful building. And in many ways, it was the symbol of the fall of Detroit, you know, that this once the ambitions of the city that they, they once built this incredibly impossibly grand train station. And now it's been just sitting there, you know, abandoned for more than 20 years. And it always bothered Bill. Um, uh, and it, it's right in Cork town. And of course the Fords, Henry Ford came from County Cork, Ireland. So it's right in the sort of the Irish enclave of, of Detroit. And he just, and, and the, the guy who'd been owning it had been sort of sitting on it forever and not doing anything with it. And Bill decided to buy this train station and to be a center for the future of innovation for the auto industry, a place where we could start to work out how we're going to make autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles and software driven vehicles and a, a hive of, you know, where lots of smart people could come together, not just Ford, you know, sort of Detroit's version of Sand Hill Road. And so it was this big giant vision. Um, and for me, I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's about the future of Ford. It's about whether Michigan can still be the center of innovation for a transportation in the auto industry. It's about, it's sort of the capstone in some ways of the, of the resurgence of Detroit, the rise, fall and rise again of Detroit. This, this, this most recognizable symbol of the fall of Detroit being good. It's going to be restored. And so we just, we were thinking about like, how do you tell that story? And we, we did a lot, but one of the ideas was to commission a documentary. And my, my thought was let's, let's commission a documentary hire. We ended up hiring um, Jane Root, who, who did a lot of the BBC documentaries. And um, we said, you know, you, you guys do it the way you want to do it, but the spine of the story should be the train station. So tell the story of the rise, fall and rise of Detroit through the train station you know, and that's what they did because, you know, when in, and uh, we just assumed that we could tell a story that was good enough that we could. And eventually, of course, we, we sold it to uh, the history channel and they, and that's, that was the Genesis for Detroit comeback city. So if you watch it, it's a real story about what happened in Detroit. The train station is a great storytelling vehicle to take you through that that documentary. Um, of course, it features Bill and interviews with Bill and, and shines a nice light on Ford Motor Company. Um, but it wasn't, I didn't consider it a piece of advertorial because the way that we did it, we we worked with the very best people. History Channel did a great job on the final edit. And I thought that's, yes, we, we did the New York Times, we did the journal, we did a seven minute piece on CBS this morning, but those things are transitory, you know, like this documentary will be around forever. It's on streaming networks now. And so, you know, that's what was exciting to me. The same, we, we also did a podcast called bring back Bronco, which was when we decided to bring back the, the Ford Bronco after, you know, a quarter century since we discontinued it. And there was a lot of excitement about it. And we thought there's a really great story within Ford motor company about how we eventually brought back the Bronco. And, you know, with, so we did like, it was like, it's a seven or eight parts. And we went through the, the history, how it was made, the OJ chase, this group of true believers within the company that always wanted to bring the Bronco back, many failed false starts and tries, finally a breakthrough. They figured out how to bring it back and make a business case out of it. And so, you know, 
And I thought, that's a story that you'll never, you can never tell in a TV interview or a newspaper interview alone. That That is, you know, and so we, we've been experimenting with different things like documentaries, podcasts, um, and other things. Um, and I still consider that communications and PR, you know, um, maybe somebody doesn't consider it that, but I do because it's just telling our story, which is our job. Right. So Mark, it's interesting. That's where you're going there. That was what was starting to bubble up in my mind as you think about the communications function and something that there's a lot of conversation about, you know, in the industry about the role of the CCO, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but oftentimes it comes back to things about reputation, perception, we talk, we talk about managing reputation, those kinds of things. But I feel like as you're talking, you keep coming back to storytelling, which everybody would say, sure, that's part of what we do. But you really seem to be positioning yourself almost as the chief storyteller for Ford Motor Company. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, first of all, do you agree with that? You know, and then second of all, like, um, you know, maybe how do you think about the role of communications? You obviously have a lot of access, you know, to, to top leadership. Um, you know, they you obviously have their trust. I mean, how do you think about the role of communications there? I mean, I do think it is about our story. I do think that that's how you, there is a lot of work to do to protect reputation and to, you know, there's all, all those things that you mentioned, but ultimately I you know, I would say like Bill Ford or Jim Farley is the chief storyteller for the company, but I do consider my role is, is helping to tell our story. And, and what's more powerful than that? You know, if you think about what's going on with Formula One right now, Formula One felt like a, a, a dying dead brand. And then they, then they, I, I wouldn't say dead, but they were, they were really struggling to, to have, could they be relevant uh, to a, more than a niche audience. And then, you know, the Strive to Survive series on Netflix has completely, completely opened the world's eyes to like the drama and the characters and the technology and the stakes involved in Formula One. And, um, you know, that was pretty inspirational for me. Um, so I do see that as, as a big part of our role. I mean, obviously we work closely with the marketing group and others to tell the Ford story. Um, but that's kind of what gets me out of bed is, you know, few, few uh, people get the, the chance to launch vehicles like the, the Lightning or the new Bronco or the Mustang Mach-E or get to tell the story behind, um, you know, buying a train station downtown Detroit to, to carve out the future of, of the city and the industry. And, you know, I could name a, a million just very unique opportunities that we get, you know, we're built, we're, we're right now building a massive factory called Louisville city down in Tennessee for the next generation of Ford trucks. And it's going to be the biggest plant in our history. And I, I just think, you know, the, the opportunity we have is, is for people to, to be fascinated by and interested uh, in Ford and what we're up to. Um, and the only way to do that, you cannot, force you can't ram it down their throat it's not like the old days where you know i mean i have all these commercials seared into my brain from when i was a kid sitting in front of a tv that i could recite to you now uh that's that's impossible i think in today's world um and you have to you have to earn it but there's more to earning it than just getting newspaper stories yep you know, and there's so many fun ways that we can go out and tell our story. So that's the way I look at it. Yes, a big part of my job is dealing with reputational issues and, and all that kind of thing. But 
we, we try to spend most of our time talking about how do we tell our story in a way that would captivate people, um, build uh, advocacy. Like, you know, I, I'm impressed with Tesla because they have just legions of fans that just love what they're all about, love their story, love Elon Musk, love, you know, what they're doing. And, and, and you know, anytime I tweet about something good Ford's doing, I, I, I hear from all these Tesla fans basically telling me, you're full of shit, you know, we're, we're the real, you know, you guys are, aren't anywhere near Tesla because, because their story is inspiring people and they're not doing it through press releases and TV commercials. They're, I hate to say it though, long, long before there was Tesla, there were fan forums for the Mustang and the Bronco sure, sure. and all kinds of other you know, things. Right. And we, so that. in my mind, we have every right to sort of built that same kind of grassroots, you know, uh, tribe, you know, uh, in, it, it does already exist to your point. There's Mustang clubs, you know, when I was in China, there were Mustang clubs, but, um, but I, I just love the idea of building that out as organically as possible. Yeah. And obviously we're big believers in that. You know, we, we, we call it earned marketing here. And, but one of the things that, that goes into it and is often part of the conversation today is about data and being data driven and how do you measure and explaining the value and, you know, et cetera. And it's interesting because you've talked about some very inspirational work here today, and it's all been through the lens of being a great writer, being a great storyteller, things that are more sort of intuitive and right brain perhaps. Um, so what are, you know, what is your philosophy when it comes to kind of the role of data in what we're talking about? Yeah. So I, I very much believe in, in keeping data in front of us, you know, whenever we meet as a team, we're, one of the first things we do is just go over where we actually are. I'm not such a big fan of like counting clips, which is because you don't really know the impact of it. But um, for example, um, one, one data point that we look at all the time is if you go ask the population of, of the United States, let's say, uh, if you were to buy an electric truck, who what would be the brand you'd want to buy it from? Right. And, and we, you know, so if we're not, no matter how splashy the F-150 lightning launch was or, or how much coverage it got, if we're not moving that, then we, then we've got to sort of take stock and say, okay, what, what we're doing is not working, you know? So, so we, I try to look at, look at it from, uh, from that point of view, not, not the sheer amount of coverage or a number of clips, which I think sometimes people in our profession fall into the trap of, but are you moving opinions? Can you, can you, and if you're not, are you willing to sort of say, okay, let's adjust and let's keep adjusting until we find out, until we find out what really does shift opinions. And, and so uh, obviously, you know, the, the overall um, brand reputation of Ford, if, if that's not moving in the right direction, we, we need to understand why we watch that all the time. But then we go a level deeper in, into the things that really matter. And do people believe that Ford has a better future than it has a past? That's a tough metric for us. Because Especially when you have such a great past. Yeah, when you have a great, great past, which is a great thing and, and, and gives the company, breathes a lot of interest in life into the company in, in many ways. But the problem we've had, I'd say over the past couple of decades is more people would say you have a greater past than you do a future. <clears throat> so we asked that question specifically. And, and if we're not moving the needle, then that's a problem. So I could give you a thousand examples, like, but that's the kind of data that I, I really like to look at. 
can we so can we double click on that? And I know that we're running out of time, so maybe this is our last question. But you know, it's it's something that's very interesting to us, more on the CPG side. You know, we work with a lot of heritage brands that have kind of lost a step, you know, um, and are trying to regain that relevance. And they're always talking about Gen Z or you know, like how do we do something that's relevant but not cringe-inducing on TikTok? Um, you know, but oftentimes what we're finding in the data is that there's just a preference for new brands. Right. There's a preference like Tesla. They've done a lot of great things, but a lot of it might just be the fact that they have not been around for 100 years. They are, quote unquote, my generations. Right. Um, so from your standpoint, how do you leverage the heritage, the value, the nostalgia, the, you know, the iconic nature of a Ford while still being cool and relevant? Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky balance. I think both things can be true. That, you know, if I were working at Coleman, the, you know, their coolers, I would be like, how the heck did this happen? Why is Yeti so much more relevant than we are? We've been making coolers that, you know, we've got amazing archives. But I think there is a sweet spot for brands. Like, if, if you are smart enough about how you sort of connect the past and the future. And that's why when we were talking about the F-150 Lightning earlier, you know, where you can, you can draw a line that starts in the past with what people, you know, love and respect and take it to the future in a way that's relevant to them. I think that's, that's the key and good brands are able to do that. And I gave you a couple of examples with the train station or the F-150 Lightning or the electric Mustang, where I think, it is possible to do that, to, 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 to build on that heritage and that equity that you have, that reservoir of goodwill you have for your brand, but never rely on it to the point that, that people just say, well, we like Ford, but they're a part of the past, not the future. And I, you know, I think Levi's does a, an amazing job with this. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of brands out there, you know, Harley, I think is, is trying to figure this out. Um, John Deere. I mean, I can give you, a, a, there's many, many examples in, in a lot of sectors, um, you know, CBGs, same way. So the way I look at it is, you know, our history and our heritage and is an advantage as long as, as long as you're able to, um, you know, sort of connect the past to the future. And we did, I think we did that pretty well with the Bronco, which is a runaway, just sold out hit. We were very much played on the heritage of it. We did a fun, speaking of uh, sort of the intersection between like entertainment, PR, marketing, we did a, we were involved in a documentary on Hulu called John Bronco, which is like a mockumentary, sort of like a best in show thing about, you know, a forgotten pitch man named John Bronco. And, um, and if you watch it, and it was actually pretty popular, Walton Goggins, uh, who's a pretty well-known actor, played, played the John Bronco character. It was another example of where we're, we know people love the history and heritage, particularly of something like the Bronco, but they have to also believe that the new product is no compromise. They're not going to buy, you're not going to spend $45,000 of your family's money based on that warm feeling. You have to, you have to do both. You have to connect, use that to infuse meaning and life into it, but also convince, uh, convince them that, you know, it's a fully no, it's a, it's a just a, an amazing, exceptional product or experience um, in the, in good brands do it. And a lot of brands failed and, you know, I think um, have failed to do that well. And, 
you know, so here we are 119 years in and we're still a pretty relevant company, but it's, it's a, you know, we'll never have the, the newness of a, of, of Tesla and they'll never have the history that we have. Uh, so we just have to play that, that to our advantage um, as best we can. Yeah. Just, just picking up one more theme that you, you mentioned there. Um, there's a, there's a, I guess, largely academic debate in the marketing field about, you know, the difference between brand versus product marketing. And to your point about when you were a kid, you would have commercials just, you know, emblazoned into your, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, written on your eyeballs for you. Um, and you really could just make brands that way. But now if the product isn't there, the brand won't follow. All right. So I think that, you know, all the things you guys have done, they're really, you know, both from the product standpoint, but then from the activation standpoint, the doing things instead of just pitching or just saying stuff, you know, the, the actual marketing actions you're taking are really, I think, um, uh, they're very instructive for everybody. So thank you for sharing um, a lot of the detail and the behind the scenes here. I know that people are going to really enjoy hearing from you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking about these things and, and, and uh, hearing about what other, you know, great companies and brands are up to. Uh, we don't, we definitely don't have all the, uh, have a monopoly on good ideas. So we're, we're constantly, you know, trying to learn from others in our field and, and, and I think that's part of it is our, our business is changing. What we do is changing just as fast as everything else, maybe faster. Um, so, you know, we just try to keep learning and keep experimenting, take some chances where we can. Well, thank you. It's obviously working. Um, and thank you again and take care. All the best. Have a great one. All right. Here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Mark Truby. Number one, learn journalism. Many comms leaders have stated that journalism is the most useful form of writing to learn. As a form, it teaches conciseness and the inverse pyramid concept of stating the facts up front and then expanding as you move forward, which structurally applies to just about anything, including emails, press releases, and all marketing and sales copy. In Mark's case, his journalism background was the foundation that he built his comms career on because he not only learned all about Ford, but understood journalists and how to reach them because he was one himself. This proved to be a fruitful point of leverage in his PR career, because overall being a journalist taught Mark to always look for the story, which is what editors are always trying to uncover in every article and every pitch. More on this in the next point. Number two, make art, not ads. A lot of Ford's approach to marketing under Mark's leadership has been very story-centric and leaned more into entertainment than marketing. Ford launched a fascinating podcast series all about what happened to the Bronco, a very long and elaborate story that could only be told in a long-form medium like podcasting. Ford also put out multiple documentaries, none of which felt like advertising, but worked beautifully as engaging stories that elegantly showcased the brand without feeling like an ad. The benefit of creating this kind of content is that it never goes away. Unlike news cycles, the documentaries and podcasts keep streaming and remain indelible. Number three, connect the past with the future. A big challenge for heritage brands is leveraging their legacy while remaining relevant. In Mark's case, he's well aware that Ford will never seem as new and cutting edge as Tesla, and that's okay. 
Tesla will never have the 100 plus year history that Ford has. In bridging the gap between your brand's legacy and your brand's relevance, Mark says it's a matter of connecting the past with the future, embracing where your brand has been, but most importantly, articulating where it's going in a concise narrative. Anyway, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? To learn more about our agency, visit us at lippytaylor.com. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Thanks again for listening to Frictionless Marketing. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.